0: Hello, and welcome to the Sweet Tea Shakespeare Hours, where we spend time well by spending it together. We're so glad you're here. Sweet Tea Shakespeare is a theater and music company based in North Carolina that seeks to gather diverse communities around a common table to delight in story, song, and stagecraft. This podcast is kind of like our digital campfire, a place where we can come together to share ideas and tell stories. Our podcast has four distinct ways of gathering and sharing those ideas and stories. You're currently listening to After Hours, a series of candid discussions about politics and pop culture, and occasionally, their intersections with Shakespeare. For the best listening experience, we recommend a stiff drink or a strong cup of coffee. So grab your favorite late night beverage and settle in. Things are about to get lively. Hello. How are you?
1: Hello. Well, I'm fine. How are you today?
0: Swell. Um, very swell. Super swell. Um, you know, making it.
1: That's, that sounds great. Swell and making it. It's like a title of a self-help book. Swell and making it by Jeremy Phebeg. How are you? I'm fine. It's uh, the day after Halloween, morning after here. um obviously kind of a weird Halloween this year but uh, spend it with the kids they did a scavenger hunt around the house for candy with all the lights out and uh, with uh um, flashlights and uh, then um, watched some movies uh, watch Beetlejuice and and uh, a new episode of The Mandalorian, so I have funny. not seen it yet.
0: I've been my life is not my own.
1: I get it. It's real good. We should actually discuss it at some point. But um, it's a it's a good episode. It's a bold episode in many ways. But we'll uh, yeah. Have I got to
0: catch up before somebody Most ruins point. it for me.
1: Yeah. It's, there are things that could be ruined too. So it really would behoove you to catch up if you're going to be All right. online into the world. Um, yeah. So, um,
0: you know, I, I like, I, uh, uh, it's election season in a swing state. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a mess here. Kamala Harris is in town today. I'm told nobody knows any of the details. I'm sure because they're trying to keep the numbers down. Um, well, maybe
1: also because they're trying not to get run off the road like they did oh, in yeah, Texas true. the other day, where that is a true. whole bunch of like dudes in trucks decided to administer some country justice to the Biden bus. Unreal.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I have I have an acquaintance who um who is uh like going to be part of the local motorcade. Um, went through the the background checks and all of that, so. Um, it's been, it's been interesting to hear about that. Um, from, from that end of things. Um, anyway, here we are. It's, uh, the day after Halloween, all souls day. Hello souls. In the meantime, we're going to talk about things that are, uh, not connected to Shakespeare. I think in the slightest, uh, we're going to talk about,
1: we could, I we could probably, no, that's not entirely. Oh, you're you're right. You're right. You're right.
0: Number two is number two. So we're talking about Borat two, uh, And we're talking about our uh, National Writing Month projects. We're not writing novels. We're writing other things. So we're going to talk about that and sort of hash out the process a little bit. And we're also talking about Burger King in our uh, regular feature of sandwich reviews.
1: Yeah. So jumping into um, Borat here, this is the sequel to uh, the movie from... 15 years ago. Holy cow. Um Borat and if I was more on the ball I'd be able to give you the entire title which is long and funny. Let's uh see if we can find that, shall we? Borat um Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan uh and this is the sequel. Uh, 15 years later, uh, which um, <laughs> does have a similarly unwieldy title. Uh, that uh, is, um, at, in a sort of funny recurring joke throughout the the film, the uh, the title of the movie keeps changing. Like they throw up a new title card periodically as the uh, object of of uh, of Borat's. Um, sort of, you know, uh, well, his uh, objective changes throughout the film. But uh, the title, they end up with his Borat subsequent movie film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit, Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. So uh, as the title suggests, things have uh, gone badly for um, the once glorious nation of Kazakhstan in the subsequent years since the first Borat film and uh, well the fictional version of Kazakhstan and that is because uh, this film tells us directly because of Borat who um, because of the uh, because of the um, massive success of uh, the first movie Made Kazakhstan into a laughing stock, for which uh, Borat was uh, publicly tortured and then sent to um, hard labor in a prison camp, which is where we meet him at the beginning, where he is breaking rocks along with uh, small children and old people who <laughs> have all been sentenced to prison. So we jump right into the uh, you know questionable representation of. <laughs> of this um, Eastern block moving into Middle Eastern sort of uh, country. So, anyway, uh, and yeah, so then it's all about them uh, taking Borat out of the prison camp and saying and telling him that he uh, needs to go to America to give a bribe to uh, somebody in Trump's orbit. In order to uh, let the president of Kazakhstan take his place among the uh, tough guy dictators who are friends with Trump. He wants to be in the club along with uh, Kim Jong-un and or Kim Jong-il. Which one is it? (laughs) Which one is the son? Oh, this is sad for me. Um, With the Kim family and, uh, (laughs) and also... And also uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, Bolsonaro and whatnot. And so Borat goes to America with the gift of um, a famous monkey from Kazakhstan, who's the minister of of culture for the country and also a famous porn star. And he's going to gift the (laughs) porn star minister of culture to mike pence just (laughs) describing this i mean this really speaks to what i feel like are the uh strengths of this film um which is a mixed bag maybe in many respects uh you know it's um uh (laughs) sasha baron Cohen going back to the well uh and i remember thinking not too long ago that uh it just before the movie had been announced, which it it was announced in the last month, like super quickly, the fact that it existed, uh, thinking yeah, they could never make a sequel to that. And then lo and behold, they did. Um, and uh, so anyway, Borat goes to America for that purpose uh, and then quickly finds out that his uh, daughter, who he, his 16-year-old daughter, who he just found out about, um, Tagged along as a stowaway uh, in the monkey's crate, and she ate the monkey. <clears throat> and uh, so now Borat has to uh, give his daughter to Mike Pence instead of the monkey, and it's about their relationship. Really, is the core of the film as they go through uh, America in the early days of COVID. So that's the sort of you know forty thousand foot uh, view of the film. And uh, then structurally, it's very similar to the first one, right? Mm. They uh, go around talking to some people in documentary form and some people, and clearly a lot of it's scripted, maybe even more than the last one. Like, yeah, it feels uh, there's, um,
0: there's yeah. a story here, uh, unlike the, yeah. the, the first one, which is, it, it does sort of tell the story of his narrative. Uh, well, of his it's, a, it's a
1: bunch of sketches, right? right. Like hung on the Frame of him trying to go talk to Pamela Anderson. Yeah. and this That's, one,
0: this one definitely has a father-daughter sort of trope,
1: yeah, through it, you know, right. And, and in the meantime, I mean, there are clearly a few instances where they're actually interacting with, uh, with people like everyday people, but uh, I don't know. This is a different movie in many respects. So,
0: yeah, I mean, um. um I'll I'll just say on my end it it like first of all I think um uh I love Borat. I love Sasha Baron Cohen. I I I have been delighted. To, he's one of the people that that is sort of a destination watch for me that I will go out of my way to to see a uh, see something that he's in um just because he's in it. Um and I um like, you know, I, I got a kick out of his involvement in the, the Sweeney Todd project several years ago. And, um, and you know, in the last episode we, we talked about, um, the trial of Chicago seven and he's in that. Um, and so his work really delights me. I, I like fell out of my seat during the first Borat. This one worked less well for me. I, I, um, I found myself, uh, sort of, sort of disinterested throughout. Um, and, uh, like, I could get ahead of sort of where it was going at several points. Um, but you know, when, 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 um, when Cohen is doing his best work, it is when he gets into trouble in a scenario with someone who's his target and, uh, escapes and uses his like insane intelligence and, and sort of dexterity with the language to escape. Um, and part of the part of what this film deals with um or that he has to deal with in this film that he didn't i think as much in the first one is that he's a celebrity. He Sasha Baron Cohen is a celebrity, Borat is a celebrity. And so it's it's much more difficult for him to lay the trap. Um and so you don't actually see that that much. There there aren't that many traps. Um,
1: well, he we- or he wears like insane costumes. Yeah like disguises theoretically
0: too. Uh, and I would just say, so for me, it, it didn't work as well. It, it didn't hold my attention that much. I do love that. It was like, um, like super ridiculous, um, super ridiculous. I love that part. I think when it gets like moves to the absurd, it's, it's insanely yeah. funny and weird and right. And all of that uh, for me, the the, the two parts of the film that, that have the most, um, Resonance, and I don't actually mean that because they're not resonant at all. But in terms of the ones that landed for me the most, um, are his his days uh, shacked up with uh, two Trump supporters in a in their log cabin, and his
1: yeah, kind of QAnon guys too. Yeah,
0: the, and his the films sort of sympathetic take on those people, even while he's he is making fun of them and the whole, the whole shtick is that. Well, that, it's more that, nice.
1: It's kinder to them than like, there are similar figures from the first Borat, like the guy or no, you know what I'm thinking of? Uh, I'm thinking of um, Bruno, his movie that he made later uh, with essentially the same sh- shtick though, with his in Bruno. It's like this ultra gay um, fashion TV presenter. Uh, who at one moment is like sitting around a campfire with a bunch of sort of good old boys in the South in America. And the the footing towards, it, the, the approach towards those characters and their representation in that film is extremely angry and mean-spirited, which isn't to say they don't deserve it, you know what I mean? But it's striking that uh, it's not as sort of overtly malicious in this film to those uh, sort of comparable figures, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he, he makes fun of other, um, he's not making fun of them. And I'm, I'd be really interested to hear why. Um, I have a theory, which is that, cause he makes fun of plenty of others. Um, most of the others in the film that he makes fun of have a kind of economic access, um, or, or
1: political access that those two guys don't have. Honestly, I have a suspicion that those guys are actors mm. and that the whole thing's not actually true just because in this film they get used subsequent to sort of that sequence where he's uh, quarantined with them. They become movers in the plot in a way that That's feels yeah. very unlikely to me if they were actually doing that, Like, um, I, uh, which is even more interesting because then the sort of kindness towards them or their somewhat benign presentation in the film is really a choice. Do you know what I mean? If they're, (laughs) if they're written as opposed to uh, having captured these essentially amiable guys who hold these, you know, fairly, you know, disgusting and upsetting, (laughs) um, you know, positions, but uh, are, are in fact pretty friendly. Um, And if that was scripted, in fact, and those, Two guys are actors. That just makes it a more interesting and complex
0: thing that he's doing. That's a good point. I would say the other part is um, uh, the Giuliani sequence that's now famous and it has been everywhere. Yeah. Where um, um, and what? What? So, it, for, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, uh, this is a spoiler alert. So turn this off if you're going to go watch this. But but it's been in the news. Um, yeah. The the film shifts targets from. From uh, trying to pursue Mike Pence uh, to trying to pursue uh, Rudy Giuliani, and they get in a room. Um, uh, Borat's daughter, who has sort of now come up as a as a journalist, yeah, she's if,
1: decided she wants to follow in her father's footsteps and be a a, a journalist. In what is a pretty deft uh, sequence, actually, like that, she really is like this. The kind of you know Fox News blonde, along with the Eastern European sort of uh, thing that they really like over at OAN, for instance. I mean, it's a very deft piece of uh, uh, of observation that. And then what's funny is that she's she's pretty credible in her scene as you know that kind of a as that kind of a figure. There's a cut. Uh, okay. Anyway, she goes to interview him. I'm gonna. She goes
0: to, to interview him. him. Um, he uh, he's been Giuliani. It's a, you know, he's, he's this larger than life personality. Um, uh, the, the interview goes awry in part because of, of Borat's involvement. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> this is a massive understatement. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: which, which I mean, the thing about it words. is that, that at no time do you get a sense that, that, that Giuliani is sort of woken up to the fact that he's, he's being played. Um and then um the 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 interview collapses uh Borat's daughter is well, it
1: collapses is in- with the implication being that Giuliani was about to become sexually aggressive with uh, Oh well, I was get, yeah like, that's what
0: comes next Borat's yeah. daughter is sort of distressed he tries to console her there are drinks involved Giuliani ends up on the bed with mm-hmm. his hand in his pants and then Borat uh, dressed quite ridiculously comes in and interrupts. Um, and, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's splash was that. And, and when it landed, I mean, it, it, I think I read the New York Times headline that talked about a bombshell. And of course, in, in the Trump era, nothing is a bombshell. There are no such things. Um, this would have ruined any other, like in any other period it would have ruined a politician's life for a good long time. And it's just not doing that anymore. Um no, and so it I was mean, like uh it was like a headline for all of about seven minutes and then we've moved on. But it was really exciting to watch. Uh and and um, it like the kind of uh uh cringe-worthy stuff that, that Borat and Sasha Baron Cohen are exceptional at and yeah. I, I love I, that I mean,
1: part. I think that the lack of like major uh, major fallout is, in part, a function of the sort of diminished figure that Giuliani is these days. That he is not, you know, what he once was, and is kind of a ridiculous person. And it's an interesting moment. Like Giuliani's response to it was like, "Well, I was trying to take my microphone out of, you know, which like was strung down my shirt, and I was trying to take it off, and so I laid back and was pulling it out from, you know, my shirt." through my pants i you know here's the thing i'm inclined to think that that might actually be true if you're looking at it but it doesn't matter like he's still being lechy and gross with her in all the sequences that you know in the whole sequence and everything that leads up to that uh including inviting this you know girl who he believes to be 24 into his bedroom for drinks at his hotel i mean that's just crazy right Uh, And, and why, even before he lays back and, you know, if we give him the benefit of the doubt, sticks his hands in his pants in order to remove his mic. Look, like, I'm not here to, my, 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 my thing here is
0: like, I'm not here to, to, uh, if it was not Giuliani, it was just some other dude. Like, I don't care about what you do with consenting people. That's, that's, that's fine. Um, The, the, issue is his uh for me is his absolute cluelessness like his ability to be um uh sold i mean like yeah simply like
1: right
0: it uh it that's it's like this is the guy that's advising the guy that's running the country and they both have these issues in my view of like believing whatever is in front of them at face value. And that's kind of the, the, the moment. And, uh, at least for me, some of, some of what well, we're being called to think about. And in, in for
1: sure, sequence. it's also funny because like it coincides completely coincidentally with, uh, you know, Giuliani's reemergence into the public narrative with the Hunter Biden stuff, which is, you know, similarly again, like where, where so much of that is rooted in like really nothing, but he, you know, Hunter Biden has a salacious life in some ways. Like that's the the charge essentially to find Giuliani in a comparably sort of compromising position, you know, with with a young girl and stuff. It's just unseemly, which is ultimately what you know the charge against Hunter Biden is. It's not that it's illegal, I think it's unseemly, and so it is like it really the charge of hypocrite of, uh, of hypocrisy really mm. lands. I one other thing worth noting about the movie. The, the actress, Maria Bakalova, who plays Borat's daughter, is really good in this part, mm-hmm. I think. Like, uh, has a comedic, you know, um, you know, uh, talent that is impressive. And it's hard to be funny in a language that is not your native language. And she, she really <laughs> is able to do that. What I was going to say earlier is that there's a cut scene, a deleted scene of her um, of her like interacting with various right-wing media people and right-wing politicians uh, and doing it very deftly like she is a good actress and that's a funny little scene if you've seen the movie worth checking out.
0: If you enjoy the work of Sweet Tea Shakespeare, the number one thing you can do is log on to patreon.com slash sweet tea shakes and make a monthly pledge those pledges start at five dollars uh, and they go up to five hundred dollars actually you can set whatever amount you want um, but that is the greatest way that you can show support to sweet tea shakespeare and help us continue to do the work of this podcast and so many of the other things that we do throughout the year that's patreon.com Slash Sweetie Shakes. It's uh, it's November. It's it's National Writing Month. We we are it writers, is. and so we thought we would take the opportunity of the month and uh, and write some stuff every day. That's what we're going to try and do. That's it's a heavy commitment, <laughs> uh, but I'm we're going to try and do it. And oh, uh, we we're going to share with you the output of those efforts. So, yes. Rob, you want to tell us tell us what what we're what we're after here in November?
1: Well, we have, in fact, shared some of the project right. that we are um, that we're working on here in uh, various forms in these broadcasts in the past. Uh, it's our play about Falstaff's son, uh, and. Uh, If you go back to the very beginning of this podcast series, you can hear um, a chunk from that uh, play that was performed in front of an audience back when audiences were allowed to be performed in front of. And uh, also on the podcast, Jeremy and I um, talked about another chunk of it. Uh, Anyway, it's a, Play that takes place um, before, during, and after the events of the uh, Henry IV plays, and um, and uh, well, really before Henry IV Part Two. Uh, after the events of Henry IV Part One, before Henry IV Part Two, during the events of Henry IV Part Two and Henry V. And then goes on into the future mm -hmm. from there, uh, through, uh, to the boy, um, who is a character in Henry the fourth part two and Henry the fifth, uh, Falstaff's page, who in our story is, uh, in fact, Falstaff's son, who, uh, with, um, with uh, Hal or King King Henry V's uh, assistance as uh, Falstaff has maneuvered to try and give him a slightly better life than he would have had um, if he had been born oh, and raised openly under the circumstances which he was uh, sort of would have been otherwise. <laughs> and uh, we want to, you know, ha- show his... Um, life um with his father who he doesn't know is his father when he meets him and then uh in our telling of this finds out uh after his father's death who that Falstaff is in fact his father and then a little later in life as a young man we have the boy um reconnecting with uh or connecting with with uh hal henry and uh sort of developing a relationship with, with Henry that is not dissimilar from the relationship that Falstaff and, and how have or had and uh, getting into all that. So that's sort of the broad overview of it. And um, we want to finish writing this play that we've been sort of intermittently <laughs> working on for a number of years at this point.
0: That's right. So, yeah. um, so we're going to share it. Um, we, we don't know how it will. We'll, we'll, when we figure that out, we'll put it in the show notes or something. But it might appear on on the uh, the Sweetie Shakespeare blog. We may do parts of it here as readings. Uh, so. So, yeah, um, do you want to do you want to say anything more about the the sort of con, conceit of yeah sure
1: um you know i guess we'll use this uh as an opportunity to sort of talk about i mean give uh, uh the audience that would be you listening to this uh an opportunity to sort of uh get a view into our creative process and putting in the thing together and seeing how that ends up in execution versus our plans uh what's interesting to us about this is you know the the idea obviously Henry the um, Henry for one and two and Henry the uh, to a lesser extent overtly are about fathers and sons. Right. Mm. And uh, you know, those relationships and um, you know, what's striking about Henry the fourth in those plays, it's about how, having a very fraught and uh, difficult relationship with his actual father and finding a father figure in um Hal, not Hal, I'm sorry, in Falstaff, uh who's disreputable and uh dishonest and, and bad in certain respects, but also has a humanity that maybe um Henry's actual father lacks to a certain degree. Or is unable to express as openly for a variety of reasons it's you know good potent stuff and what was interesting i guess for us was the opportunity to sort of look at the mirror effect um you know the the idea of uh multi-generational sort of uh trauma (laughs) in some ways and uh and its effects uh, over time, like the idea also. Uh, I think we mentioned this in, in uh, we talked about this the last time we discussed this, we uh, have the prologue character who was also in Henry V. want to bring him into, into this as well. And since we're just going to open this whole thing up, might as well say what we're actually thinking here, that that prologue character will turn out to be the boy mm-hmm. as an adult. Um, and... Uh, that uh, you know he um, makes a sort of oblique reference to um, to the line from uh, Henry IV, Part One, where uh, Hal steps out and talks to the audience, saying that he's like the sun behind the clouds, um, who will at some point reveal himself. To be more than he's pretending to be. And you know that he's using Falstaff and the uh, sort of denizens of of Eastcheap uh, in order to affect this sort of great unexpected coming out as a royal figure in order to impress his father and make everyone think that, oh, he's more than we thought he was. Um, which, you know, translates to a pretty grievously horrible thing that he does to Falstaff when he finally, Steps out from, you know, as the sun, and uh, banishes Falstaff, and and really breaks his heart, and uh. And the so in our in our prologue we make some reference to, um, the idea of sins done at break of day, again when the the sun has come out, like uh, as as per, Hal's plan, uh, coming back to to haunt him um, later like at the end of his life and that's really about how the boy and and uh, Henry uh, will interact at the end of 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 Henry's life Henry V Hal's life when he's really uh, called to account for what he did Uh, just seemed like some interest you know did to Falstaff and uh, by extension, to to the boy. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of the great things about Henry as a character is, uh, you know, he's particularly when Henry V is presented in isolation, which it is all the time, right? It's a super popular play. Um, and Henry is presented as this heroic figure, often in productions, like unambiguously so. Mm-hmm you know but the the truth is much more complicated and if you take like the the plays as a series in which you recognize like Henry's really a pretty rotten guy in a lot of respects. he's He's human, right? I mean heroic in some respects talented but not an, an unambiguous hero. And uh, this really I think gives us an opportunity to to jump into that and interrogate that a little further, you know. Uh, not that it needs it but uh, it, there's a story opportunity there and we're gonna pursue it right that's, that's right where where that is
0: well and you and I have been writing together for I don't know a long time it's true um, we wrote a I, th- number th- I think plays. our first one was was a 24 hour theater project yeah in graduate right. school and since then we've we've toyed around with a lot of things this is probably one of the ones with the, the most staying power so yeah. we're gonna try and do some damage here in November and We'll be happy to share that as we as we go, and we'll make announcements through our various channels when we have something to share, so you can look forward to that if you're out there in the universe. For sure. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Yeah, so stay tuned. More to come. Hooray. Uh, so why don't we move on to our final segment of this episode. It's time for where, sandwiches. It's time for sandwiches. Our continuing Uh, examination of fast-food sandwiches and the ranking thereof brings us to the Burger King Whopper this week Um, just to remind everybody all sandwiches are ranked uh, on a scale of uh, 50 points from with various criteria Uh, Those 50 points from Jeremy and I combined into a total score at the end. Um, And we will go through our rankings and then our uh, written reviews and we will discuss them. So, Jeremy, I will uh, kick this over to you. You can begin, please. All
0: right. My scores. Flavor, six. Mouthfeel, two. Adjoining produce, one. Bread, zero. Meat, three. Adjoining sauces and condiments, one. Sandwich aesthetic, two. Complimentary items, zero. Contextual sleaze, one. Appraisal of the cost, three. Personalities nigh unto the sandwich, zero. Nature of the sandwiches lingering in the memory, one. For a total of 18 points. Listen, the only thing anyone likes about Burger King is the ad campaign of recent years, with Creepy King Dude doing funny stuff like creeping people... Uh, out like a creepster. Once the Whopper was the Alt-Mac, but over the years, BK's market share and presence in the fast food culture has steadily diminished. Even among fast food burger joints, it's difficult to argue that the Whopper does better than third place behind McDonald's and Wendy's offerings. My Whopper experience met and maybe even exceeded my very low expectations. At the BK near my house, where I sampled the Whopper combo with fries and a diet beverage, the restaurant adjoins a poorly maintained gas station and sits at the intersection that includes a local university, an Aldi grocery store, a car repair place, and a car wash. It sits on a major entry avenue into Fayetteville and just a few yards away from a vast residential area. There's every reason to think that this BK should do very well. College kids, residents, people looking for a bite while their car's being serviced, people getting gas. But I swear to you, I think it's a ghost town. When I pulled up to the driveway, it was almost as though the person on the other end was surprised I wanted a meal. This suspicion was confirmed after it took about eight minutes to actually get my food. Then I thought, that maybe the speed of service was the reason it was a ghost town. This points to a larger issue with the past-their-prime American brands like BK, Sbarro, and Reebok. How exactly do these relics of American popular culture hang on as long as they do? Is it the giant stockpiles of money they made in the 1970s and 80s that they're just like looking to spend? Why, for instance, wouldn't a, a BK try to break into a sliver of the market where the other big dogs like McDonald's and Wendy's uh, overlooked. Um, Nope. Uh, Instead, BK's best offer in recent years has been the chicken straw, which approximates a chicken nugget, but which looks like fries instead of nuggets. Yeah, forget the food's flavor or quality. We're after novelty at Burger King. All this aside burger king's burger appeal is in its flame broiled angle on the market and it does put the burger a bit above the average mcdonald's or wendy's meat in terms of flavor take the fries and the drink with the disc shaped ice no thanks
1: all right my ranking flavor seven points mouthfeel 3.5 adjoining produce two bread two meat 3.5 adjoining sauces and condiments one Sandwich aesthetic, two. Complementary items, two. Contextual sleaze, two. Appraisal of the cost, four. Personalities nigh unto the sandwich, two. Nature of the sandwich is lingering in memory, two, for a total of 33 points. So when I was a kid between fifth and eighth grade, my family lived in England, living outside of your native country for a long time. Mundane things from home, crappy food and TV, stuff that you would never care about or necessarily even want normally can start to seem special. So, on my 11th birthday, my parents took me to see the Terry Gilliam film, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen*, and we got food at Burger King. And it was about as close to a perfect birthday as I could have asked for. And uh, where we ate played no small part in that. McDonald's was all over England, but Burger King, for some reason, was more rare. And in my young imagination, it had a certain American mystique. I can still remember how much I liked the distinctive flame-grilled flavor of the cheeseburger, how exciting it was. These days... I don't make it to Burger King much, but when I do, the flame-broiled flavor of the burgers still stirs the primal pleasure and memory centers of my brain. So, spoiler alert, I like the Whopper. Not that this was necessarily a slam dunk. Uh, There were other points along the way when BK might have lost me, but in the end, I still enjoyed it, largely on the strength of the beef itself. But let's back up a minute, shall we? Burger King is the Great American also ran second place contender to the undisputed champ McDonald's. By way of example, it has been said that McDonald's is really a real estate company as much as it is a restaurant and that the land purchases they make are a result of meticulous, exhaustive market research. Burger King's location plan, on the other hand, is to build their restaurants in close proximity to McDonald's, which is fine, whatever, but the sense of Burger King as a company not entirely secure in itself is palpable. They seem to be forever in the shadow of their stronger rival with a brand identity that says, yeah, well, we have that, too. And look, also hot dogs. This is a shame because the most distinguishing thing about Burger King is their burgers. You may or may not be a fan of the whole flame grilled bit. Obviously, I am. But the product is distinctive, even when the brand itself is distressingly amorphous. Lack of coherence is the first thing that struck me as I pulled through the drive through menu of my local Burger King. It was all over the place. Burgers with rectangular patties served on weird long buns and hot dogs, chicken, or chicken nuggets, and chicken fries. Seriously, who the hell knows? This is what corporate panic looks like. In our discussion of the Big Mac, we talked about the obvious crisis McDonald's is going through, but at least they've committed to some focused remedies. Say what you will about the possibly dubious decision to rebrand as a more sophisticated adult establishment that serves breakfast around the clock, but at least McDonald's went boldly in a new direction. Burger King is suffering from all the same negative factors that have hampered McDonald's in recent years, but their solution seems to have been just to throw a bunch of superficial crap up against the wall and hope that something sticks. So... No nationwide restaurant interior redesigned for Burger King, but you can buy deep-fried macaroni and cheese breaded with Cheeto dust sometimes. Anyway, I wasn't at Burger King for the extraneous nonsense they had on offer. I came for the flagship sandwich, the Whopper, with cheese, thank you. Ordering was a simple and straightforward affair. Hold the lettuce and tomatoes, cider fries and Sprite, and the food was delivered hot and quickly by a friendly cashier for a totally decent price. I pulled the car over and dug in. As befits the name, it is a big burger topped with onions, pickles, ketchup, and mayonnaise. They maybe go a little heavy with the condiments, though nothing as sloppy as Hardee's slash Carl's Jr. And uh, the bread is fine. I do like the sesame seeds on the bun. But the main event is the burger. Look, the meat is super processed in a way that fast food burgers usually are. But the taste... Let's be clear about this. The consistent uniformity of the flavor gives up the game to some extent. There is no way that it's not the result of some sort of artificial chemical process as opposed to the natural result of flame grilling, as the advertising implies. Still, it is unique, and BK deserves credit for developing a burger that is immediately identifiable when others can be kind of samey. A word about the accompanying side dish. Burger King's fries tend to be pretty polarizing and are often unfavorably compared to McDonald's, which admittedly are an unholy addictive crack-laced potato Frankenstein. But here BK wisely chose to go their own direction, and I like it. Essentially, the fries are small tubes of mashed potatoes encased in a crispy fried shell. Ones I ate were hot, salty, and perfect accompaniment to the sandwich. So... All in all, a satisfying meal. Maybe someday Burger King will finally crack the code and hit on a brand identity that puts them on top. But if that never happens, and let's be honest, it probably never will. The election of uh, the 11 year old kid inside me will always have a soft spot for them and their burgers. So I like this better than you did. It sounds like Jeremy. Uh, I certainly rank mine higher.
0: Yes, indeed. I'm. Uh... You know, and I'm I'm totally as I think about this. You know, it's been it's been several years since I've been back. I think I did. Uh, uh well, since I wrote this review, I have been back in in uh, recent weeks. Actually, um, like I was I was searching for food somewhere. This is right near my house. I was searching for food somewhere like late at night. Um. And there was a car accident, like right in front of where I turn into, to where I live. And so I was stuck at the Burger King. I'm like, okay, this is not my first, second, third or ninth choice, but I'm going to go. And it was, it was a uh, pretty decent. I just had the, the burger patty with cheese on it and pickles and stuff. And it was uh, pretty decent. Uh, probably, if I had to go back and do it again, um, I, you know, I might give it a few more points. Uh, the flavor yeah. is good. As you point out, the flavor is good. The Everything else you have to do to get to the flavor is, uh, is the drawback for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, in the era of COVID when the menu's actually been pared down from its crazy excesses, which was where it was at when we did this initially. But the food is – I mean, listen, let's just stipulate that all of this food is not great. You know what I mean? And as distinctive as the flavor is, it's clearly not like a natural sort of naturally evoked thing. Um, but it's, it's not bad. And I think that that's part of why I continue to stick. I do worry it won't though, if they don't, uh, do something to sort of, you know, give it a more definite brand direction. The idea that Burger King is going to be around in 20 years seems like a potentially dubious Mm -hmm. question. It's hard to know. Anyway, I think we'll, uh, leave that there for the moment.
0: I should say that this is our last podcast before the election. So uh, when this airs, actually, it will be after the election. And all I want to say to everyone for the next several months is good luck. Keep your head down. Hopefully, uh, hopefully things look up. Whatever looking up looks like for you.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll talk about all of that next time uh, when we know what the world is going to look like.
0: Alright, my friend.
1: Alright. Tata for Ta-ta now. Next
0: time. See you later, everybody. Bye-bye. One quick word about the after hours. You know, sometimes I get into these conversations with Rob and I'm like, what does this have to do with Shakespeare? And the answer is, sometimes directly, not much. There's not much that we talk about that has to do with Shakespeare. But I still think there's value here because what we do when we deal with Shakespeare is look at an artist who is responding to his own culture, time period, politics, popular music, other plays. And so, After Hours is maybe the most different, most out there thing we do. There is not a really strong Shakespeare or theater tie to what Rob and I talk about all the time. But I still think it's valuable. Because when we're looking at Shakespeare, we're looking at an artist and how they responded to their world, to their culture, to their politics, to their entertainment. And so by Rob and I engaging in those kinds of conversations, I hope you can begin to see what artists are doing in responding to our own contemporary culture and begin to see the connections there. Sometimes we do have a direct tie to Shakespeare and that's great and sometimes we don't and that's great too. Another thing I would love for you to understand about After Hours is that the opinions expressed in it are the opinions of the individuals involved. They don't represent Sweetie Shakespeare. You may hear things about politics or about your favorite film that you just violently disagree with, and I want you to know that that disagreement is welcome. Sweetie Shakespeare gathers people around a common table. Those people don't have to agree. They don't have to be cookie cutters. They don't have to have the same interests. In fact, the conversations are richer and deeper when they do not. And so even if you find yourself disagreeing vehemently with something that's said in any one of our podcasts, but especially in after hours, take a deep breath, pull yourself up to the table and know that we value your contribution as well. We always love to hear from you. We always love to fold in your perspective and we want to do so in a healthy, productive way. So again, if you hear something that's like, I don't get this. This doesn't seem too Shakespearean to me. That's okay. We're just artists sitting around a table, figuring out how to respond to the world. We're glad you're here for it.